Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author Christian Cameron. Christian was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1962. He grew up in Rockport, Massachusetts, Iowa City, Iowa, and Rochester, New York, where he attended McQuaid Jesuit High School and later graduated from the University of Rochester with a degree in history. After the longest undergraduate degree on record, 1980 to 87, he joined the United States Navy, where he served as an intelligence officer and as a backseater in S3 Vikings in the first Gulf War, and then on the ground in Somalia and elsewhere. After a dozen years of service, he became a full-time writer in 2000. He currently lives in Toronto, that's Ontario in Canada, with his wife Sarah and their daughter Beatrice. He is also a dedicated reenactor. He says it's like a job, except that in addition to work, you must pay to participate. And lastly, on top of writing under his given name, Christian also writes under the pen names Gordon Kent and Miles Cameron. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Christian Cameron. Thank you, David. That was a beautiful introduction. Absolutely. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> more, more, I think I just learned things about myself. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, reenacting, it is really the best job in the world for which you pay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can imagine. I mean, I, I don't. I don't see a whole lot of it, you know, down in the south. We, uh, I mean, we probably have got, have got some uh, some LARPing going on every now and then, but we definitely don't have legit reenactment and you know people in full armor and stuff going around. So it's it's kind of neat following you on social media and and being able to see that. Uh, there is a really good organization. I want to say it's called La Grande Compagnie, and I think they're in Virginia. Okay. Just saying, if you ever get a chance to see them. They're about 40 strong. They have beautiful kit. And of course, you know, there's not just medieval reenacting. You have civil war and revolutionary war reenacting oh, yeah. probably at a very high quality down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we've got that fairly close. We've got a um, – oh, what is it even called? It's called American Village. It's like right down the road, uh, probably maybe 20 minutes down the road that we've got. And we used to go there in like elementary school and see reenactments. And we'd actually like walk the field with, uh, you know, with guns and – do you know do the whole you know powder and everything like it was it was pretty yep. neat and you know go through like old courthouses and stuff so it was it was, it was a neat experience but definitely doesn't doesn't have swords and shields in it so yeah that is true <laughs> so um so kind of first off tell me a little about yourself tell me about you know growing up in the different cities uh go, you know going through school and any hobbies you had outside of school so my uh, my dad. It was it remains because he's still alive a writer okay. uh so he was an academic for a while and then he just wrote books and we sort of moved around for various reasons uh i i got a lot out of moving around i kind of i like i still like moving around i still like going to new places and seeing them that's always always good um I, my whole family is from a farm south of Rochester, New York. So I still, in a weird way, think of that as home, uh, the farm country south of, of Rochester. And uh, yeah, and now I live in Canada, which is like a whole other country. It really is. I think uh, Americans have a tendency to think Canadians are basically just like them. And I'm not sure that's exactly true. Anyway, uh, uh, I... Uh, yeah, I went. I, I thoroughly enjoyed high school, which I know is probably the wrong thing to say. And I got into writing in high school, and I wrote an entire science fiction novel that you will absolutely never see because it is really bad. Um, uh, but I still have it. It's all handwritten. It's about 330 pages long. Wow. Uh, and somehow I managed to fit in, um, 
you know, like graduating from high school and fencing and the occasional date and still managed to grind out the worst science fiction novel ever written. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, good times. Uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, well, I have, I have to know. So, uh, as, as your wife read your science fiction novel? No, nope. That, that, that will absolutely never happen. <laughs> never see the light of day. <laughs> so where do you, where do you keep it? Do you keep it like in a, you know, locked box underground somewhere? Uh, so I am an inveterate, uh, tabletop gamer and war gamer and Dungeons and Dragons, et cetera, role-playing game player. And, uh, when uh, I run a campaign of my own that has any duration, it gets its own binder. And my first novel is in the binder from one of my high school D and D campaigns. Gotcha. So how many, how one, many binders would you say you have? Uh, I think I have nine. Oh, okay. See, I was thinking, I was thinking like 20, 30. <laughs> uh, we're, we're only counting the campaigns that, either are ongoing or ran long enough to deserve a binder. Ah, okay. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about your time in the service. Ooh. Uh, if you can. Well, first of all, I, <laughs> I, I, it's a super unpopular thing to say, but I enjoyed my time in the service enormously. Um, and uh, I was first a backseater well, I, w- I went to a, an ASW squadron that is a submarine hunting with airplanes squadron. I know how odd that sounds if you weren't in the business. <laughs> and uh, that was challenging and super fun and tactically challenging and just really, really interesting and a little like write- living in a science fiction novel, got to say. Um, uh, I participated with that squadron in the first Gulf War, and we did things like looking for surface-to-air missile sites with our ECM suite and providing gas to other warplanes that needed to go to long-range targets because air-to-air tanking is a huge and intricate art Um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I got to sort of see how command and control functions worked. And I had a great experience in university where one of my professors, when I, I was thinking of going to graduate school, and one of my professors said, you know, before you write about history, really, you should make a little history. It was like one of the smartest things anybody's ever said, because I learned a huge amount from my experience in the military of watching actual decision makers function, Mm. watching admirals make tough decisions, watching the president of the United States make a tough decision. And it it was really interesting and really good for writing both fantasy and historical fiction. Yeah. Um, I, and I also really enjoyed the team, the feeling of being on a team, which I try and get in every piece of fiction I put in, the, the amazing feeling of sort of working in a coordinated way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made the mistake once of saying in a radio interview that I had enjoyed the Gulf War, and I got a lot of crap about that. <laughs> and that, that is probably fair. It was, I probably misspoke. Right. So what I'll try and say in a more measured way is there were elements of being part of a giant conflict that were profound. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't mean enjoyable, but they were profound. 
the catch show. <laughs> yeah, I can see why you get a little bit of flack for that. <laughs> um, so as far as your writing career goes, um, I know you said you, you wrote while you were in school. So did you, did you read a lot in school as well? Did you have a lot of, uh, I guess, authors that you read that became influences or would you say that it, you know, your influence came later in life or tell me about kind of getting your start into writing. So the first novel I ever read cover to cover, I did on a bet with my dad who was disappointed that I didn't like to read when I was 13. And, uh, so I read the three musketeers, which he bought at a church sale. I read it cover to cover. And that was the last, I would say the day before that church sale was the last time I didn't read a book before going to bed. Um, in high school, it was pretty normal for me to read. I know this is going to sound absurd to read a science fiction or fantasy novel every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's that absurd. You must know you, you other people who just read a book a day. Um, and right through the end of university, one of my favorite things in the world was to have the time to buy a book by an author I liked have the money, which I didn't always have to buy a good cup of coffee and to sit, drink the coffee and read the book that just about my, still one of my favorite things. Um, and yes, there are a lot of authors from that period that I, uh, still follow like CJ Sherry. Um, you know, she's still cranking out really pretty awesome books. Uh, and, uh, authors who have passed away now or who, uh, had already passed away then, like Tolkien. Um, and yeah, that it, it was a different world for speculative fiction because there was actually so little of it by comparison to today. Mm-hmm. So there really weren't any subgenres. There was not grim dark. There was not, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So I read it all. You know, I read Andrew Norton and I read J.R.R. Tolkien and I read C.S. Lewis and I read, uh, you know, like, Robert E. Howard, that's what there was. I read them all. I won't pretend they haven't all influenced me. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the ones that have really stuck with me are not really that popular now, and I can understand that. Um, E.R. Edison, Wormer Burroughs, uh, I actually liked as much as I liked The Lord of the Rings for a while. And, you know, I'm aware that E.R. Edison was sort of a closet English fascist <laughs> and probably a very difficult person. Um, and I don't like his misogyny, but man, he wrote a good battle scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that is, I mean, I, I was just part of a discussion the other day on Twitter about dealing with the classics of the past. You know, they often carry a heavy load of anti-Semitism or misogyny or racism or neo-colonialism. And uh, I don't like any of those things, mm-hmm. but I do, um, I do appreciate good writing and right. a good story. And so I try to like the art, even if I don't like the artist which I admit is a kind of old-fashioned point of view. But yeah, a lot of stuff from that period. Uh, Roger Zelazny never, to me, seems to get the credit that he deserves um, in the modern world. And the other day, on a panel at Worldcon, I said, you know, what about Lord of Light? Because somebody said, you know what kind of speculative fiction nobody ever writes? And then he basically described Lord of Light. And I said, you know, that book won the Hugo and the Nebula Award, I'm pretty sure. And we all looked at each other and I realized I was just old. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. uh, uh, You know, 
I guess people say the same thing about like HP Lovecraft too, because you know hit that cosmic horror thing and and Lovecraft itself and the Lovecraftian uh, with Cthulhu and all that stuff. I mean, it's everywhere, but everybody hated the writer, but not his writing kind of thing. That, uh, I, I think that about hits it on the head. And in fact, the Twitter conversation I was in was about HP Lovecraft. Ah. Uh, yeah, I mean, because there's so many authors that still write cosmic horror, and it's all like leading back to that. I mean, you've got Peter Kleins and John Owner Jacobs, and uh, you know uh, Victor Laval wrote one uh, one for Tor a couple of years ago. I mean, it's, it's still there, but yeah, it's it's just that nobody nobody really wants to say you know H.P. Lovecraft really uh, you know brightened my day when I read his books, and that's what made me want to do this. It's like no, well, the writing inspired it, not the writer. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree with what you did say. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to bring back the Twitter uh, back and forth, right? No. <laughs> uh, so you were saying earlier about how uh, you like to have a nice cup of coffee and, and read a book. Well, I've noticed, and I really enjoy following you on social media because of this because I really want to see what pastry you're going to have on what day with your cup of coffee when you sit down to write. <laughs> I'm always I, interested I swear in that. that. I inadvertently fell backwards into the best advertising idea in, in modern fantasy. I had no idea that pastry and fantasy were so closely interlinked until uh, I developed a small cult following. And yeah. it's great. It's absolutely amazing and nice that people care. Uh, and so I have to disappoint you and everyone else who listens to this podcast and say that for the next 46 days, which in the Christian world is called Lent. Right. I will not be having pastries and there will not be an Instagram of it. Oh. So uh, <laughs> I, and I'm sure I'll lose a thousand Twitter followers and my life will be hard, but I do always take Lent off. Uh, I do a lot less social media and I don't eat sugar. Yeah. Um, and, and I also try and walk instead of taking my car places, um, which is good for my fitness and also probably good for the planet. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking 46 off from eating pastries. <laughs> I don't blame you in the least. Um, yeah. Cause I, I kind of, I mean, I noticed like, like Nicholas Eames, he would take like a lot of pictures, like on his wood desk. And I, yep. I felt like, you know, I would see that. And then I would see, I guess, is that your kitchen table that you know? It's, it's uh, the table at Sud Forno, which is a restaurant around the corner from me. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I, you know, I, I was, I, there's, there's a whole lot of like, Wood tables and fantasy books, and I feel like that those two things just go together. And like John Gwynn started doing it, and I know, I it's, know. it's all and over you know, the place. <laughs> given that Nick Eames and John Gwynn are probably two, if not the two, of my favorite fantasy authors at the moment, uh, maybe we're all on some sort of weird shared wood table wavelength. <laughs> maybe so. And, and speaking of John, uh, you know, on top of on top of like you know your books and of course your Instagram following now with your pastries, uh, but I've noticed you and he uh, are kind of like two of the ones, and I, I assume I've seen a few more, but the main ones that I see that collect pieces of armor and show them off on on social media. So, but I feel like you you guys are like soon going to be in a competition with one another to like see who can get the most pieces. Uh. I don't know. Like, Grand, it's like two completely different sets of armor, but <laughs> I think we're in different time periods. That's true. Um, and that, that's good. Uh, you know, I guess if I jumped into Norse Viking, maybe we could have trouble, but yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Dave, my, may I call you Dave? That's fine. Yeah. Uh, that 
my experience as a reenactor, and John is also a reenactor, right? Right. Um, yeah. Is is that reenactors don't get jealous really? They just want to share their stuff with you. So it's more like, oh, that's a nice knife. I've got this knife. Oh, you're you're wearing those. Oh, you have hand knit wool stockings. That's really cool. Look at these gloves I made for myself that are really 14th century gloves. It's, I guess it's kind of a competition, but it's really kind of like kindergarten sharing hour. Right. It's like show and tell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, it's 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 taking a, it taking an appreciation for what somebody else has made or gotten or wants to show off. Like, I completely understand that. It's there's no real jealousy there. I mean, there might be a little bit like, oh, I would totally like that, but it's not something you're like, you know. <laughs> Maybe, do you do you follow Edward Quinn? I do. That? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So I'll admit, I am sometimes a little jealous of Ed because he has some very beautiful things, and. I can't afford them. So I just look and go like, wow, that's the most beautiful scabbard I've ever seen. Isn't that nice? Anyway, but uh, Ed and I managed to get along anyway. We met at Galan's Fest and he is a very nice man and he deserves to have all those lovely medieval things that I can't afford. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. Yeah, and, and you were talking about uh, uh, Gwen, you know, being more on the north side uh, than you are. Yeah, and I, and I know he... Just finished, I think, the first book in his new trilogy that's uh, like in the Norse I yep. guess, mythology. Uh, and and I don't remember if it was uh, if it was Ed or if it was his other son that was talking about reading a first draft of it. So yeah, I was kind of I'm kind of hoping that an ARC will find its way to me in the not distant future, so I can say my usual "Oh my God, it's fantastic" thing. Right? But I I I I'd like to read it. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure uh, Orbit listens to this podcast, and we'll get you one ASAP. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Stay welcome. on that. <laughs> so, uh, you said that you typically write in that little shop around the corner. Is that is that where you always write, or is that just a kind of a hot spot where you enjoy writing? Do you sometimes write at home, or does it just depend on your mood? So, um, I'm going to take that to be a question of like, how exactly do you write and what are the nuts and bolts? And I'm going to answer it that way. That works. Uh, uh, so on my ideal writing day, which for the sake of argument is what I mostly do. Uh, I am in my chair at Sud Forno at eight forty-five to nine o'clock and I don't get up until two o'clock. Wow. And during that period, I don't leave the chair and I don't stop writing. Um, and, and that's how I write as my, the volume I write. And like, I, I listen, I hear a lot of other authors and they talk about a lot of different styles of writing. So I'll just say mine is to put my nose to the grindstone for five hours and turn out. I like three to 5,000 words and I've gone a lot higher than that on, you know, great days when the pastry is singing to me. Um, but uh, yeah, and it is mostly at Sudforno. I have certainly written other places. I've had other coffee shops and I, I don't really experience trouble if I go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's just that the coffee is really good at Sudforno and all of the baristas and the manager, they all know me. So they kind of bring me stuff and I just keep writing and cups of coffee disappear you know, it's very nice. Yeah. But I say, sometimes you feel like you're cheating on them by going to a different coffee shop. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is true. I hope they're not listening, but yeah. 
Hey, but you know, but it's it's nice that that you've you've got a comfort level with them, and they bring you coffee, and you don't really know where it comes from. And wow, there's a pastry on my plate, and there wasn't one before. And yeah, it's kind of like that. I after I buy my initial round in the morning, I really don't look up. And uh, you know, most of the interviews I have, and I, I'm sorry, like this is a very unique interview, but at some point somebody basically says, "So, how can you write so fast?" and and how how come you don't lose interest and stuff like that? And I'm just going to say, um, I usually get interested in the story I'm telling, and I find writing not to be that different from reading. Mm-hmm. I'm eager to find out what's going to happen here, and that doesn't mean I don't have outlines and stuff. But yep, just just moving along. <laughs> that was actually going to be my next question. I was going to ask you know kind of what your process is. Do you do you have to plot an outline, or do you write a lot by the seat of your pants? I used to write a lot more by the seat of my pants. And now I write a lot more outlines and notes to myself. And uh, so a couple things. I'm going to pack a couple of answers into this question. One is that I like to think I get I am a better writer now than I was when I started writing. And this is a thing, I guess, um, that where I don't agree with some of the things I read from other writers. I think you want to be growing and changing um, and not reaching for like some standard. I think you want to be becoming a better writer. And that can be weird when a fan, a legit fan who you like says, Oh no, best thing you ever wrote is Trader son. Why don't you just write more Trader son? And I kind of go, uh, cause I've told that story. And now I'm telling another story and I'm probably telling it better. And then the fan says, nope, what I wanted was Trader Sun. And, you know, I'm a reader too. I have this exact same problem. And I go like, no, you hit my sweet spot perfectly with your third series. And now that you're on your fifth series, I no longer even know what you're talking about. I won't name a name, but, um, and I don't want to be that guy either, but I do want to get better. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways in which I've gotten better is just to be way more thorough from the outlining process through the like character development process. I'm huge into world building. I think it comes to me from Dungeons and Dragons or whatever role-playing game you want to know. I just use that term fairly generically. Um, And I now take a lot more notes on my world building. I write a lot of stuff to the side And sometimes I actually sort of take a day off and start um, writing a sort of handbook on my book so that if I need to go back to this polity or this individual or this magic system, I know exactly how it works. Even if you may never know how it works, I need to know exactly how it works. So, yeah, I do more of that sort of side work or back work now than I used to. I gotcha. So do you, do you use like the little field notes, uh, notepads, or is there a specific type of thing you put your notes in to keep up with them? I, uh, I work on a early, like a 2006 IBM ThinkPad. Uh, it can't find the internet. That ability has been physically severed. <laughs> uh, it is really just a word processor. Mm-hmm. It, I run Microsoft Word from a, uh, like, Windows 96, I think. Um, 
And uh, so you can understand that basically I'm using a stylus on a wax tablet. Right. And when I want to take notes, I just shift to another document and write my notes on, on the other document. I gotcha. So do you but have to, do you have to I, I also have, sorry, I also have in my camping, traveling around the world, going to reenactments bag, a good old fashioned moleskin, you know, that you can buy in any store with a pen in it. And I do when there, when I don't have my horrible old computer, I pull out the pen and just write it down. I gotcha. I was gonna ask. So, so with your uh, with your computer not being connected to the internet, I guess you just throw it, uh, throw your final draft on a flash drive to get it over to your editor. Yep, I gotcha. Um, so, so last question, kind of about your writing process itself. So, do you typically build your world out first, or do you bring characters to life first and then let them explore the world, or how does how do you do that? Yes, <laughs> I knew that was the answer. <laughs> um, so. So uh, I'm going to try and make this brief, but most of the time I see a character or even a situation. And sometimes it's a climactic fight scene. I see it in my head like a little movie. And then I sort of move outward from that. But uh, secret project number seven, which I am not at liberty to fully describe, um, I was sitting in a dark movie theater watching a movie called Little Women. And uh, the actress playing Amy was giving a speech and an entire novel appeared in my head. And I can tell you why. I can tell you how it happened. Uh, I can tell you what connections were made in that moment. I can probably even trace this sort of vaguely neuro neurological stuff. But that's the first time in a long time that a whole novel has just gone like, ding, here I am, complete with cultures and protagonists and bad guys and conflict and story arc and some technologies and the system of what you might call magic. Bing, all there. Wow. I know it's a pain in the arse, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't usually happen that way. But when it does, I have to write it. Yeah. So uh, I have been sitting down since that moment every day, sort of cranking it out. And I don't know if you read any of my historical fiction, but I wrote a novel called Killer of Men mm -hmm. about ancient Greece. And Killer of Men came the same way. It was literally as if it, I was listening to someone dictate and I was just writing it down. Huh. So do you now feel like you have to take a, uh, a moleskin with you to the movie theater just in case a, an entire novel appears in your mind? I, I get your point, but even at my greatly advanced age of 57, I can still remember a bolt of lightning like that. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't bringing age into it. I was just asking. No, I, I, I would forget I, it as soon as I walk out of the movie theater. So. Uh, I did. I admit it. I pulled out my iPhone and scribbled some notes on my iPhone. Okay. There I we did. go. All right. All right. All right. See, cause like this was like a couple of months ago. I, I just woke up in the middle of the night and I just had this dream. I was like, boom, book idea. And my wife goes, you need to write it down. I'm like, it's two in the morning. I'm not going to get up, to go write it down. It's the, the phone lights too bright. I can't do it. I still remember it. Have I even touched pen to paper or finger to keyboard? No, I, just, I don't, for some reason I can get the idea, but I don't have the motivation to put it down. I don't know what it is. I think I just like, I think I just enjoy reading more. <laughs> so my, can I tell you what my dad would tell you? My dad would tell you that 
there's a huge difference between an idea and a book. He used mm -hmm. to say this to me all the time. I'd say, I have an idea. And he'd be like, an idea is not the same thing as a book. And here I am at 57 saying the same thing to you, which is got to say something about fathers and sons. But um, he is right. And what I often find is that I have an idea. And one of the major ideas of this book I'm working on right now actually came to me about three years ago. I was actually talking to Alistair Reynolds, if you know Alistair Reynolds, the yeah. sci-fi author. Mm -hmm. And I had this idea, but it was just an idea. It wasn't a book. And so I had no motivation to follow it. I just went, eh, it's an idea. Yeah. It was the bolt of lightning was more about that's my character. And that's how the character interacts with the idea. And that's how the system works. And that, oh, wow. Like, that's what I mean by the moment that the flash of lightning hit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I actually had the idea three years ago, but it didn't make a book yet. Yeah, it's like, it's like it something, something hasn't quite clicked. Yeah. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So I know uh, we talked a little bit about uh, you doing reenacting, uh, and that's kind of you call it your uh, your job uh, per se. But can you tell me how uh, I guess you got into doing reenactments and how it kind of feeds into your writing? Sure. Uh, I grew up during the uh, American bicentennial and uh, nineteen seventy six, and I joined a reenactment group that was largely created by the scoutmaster of my Boy Scout troop, uh, and. I stuck with reenacting for a lot of reasons, but uh, I, I would not be afraid to say, despite the fact that I am in no way a conservative, that reenacting had two things Boy Scouts didn't have, which were girls and guns. And um, those were very cool things to me as a teenager. There you go. So, so I kind of stuck with that. Um, and I learned a ton from Revolutionary War reenacting. Uh, I learned a lot of leadership skills. I... I learned how to sort of motivate people. But I, in terms of writing, what I really learned was how the command and control systems of the past work. Uh, not all authors want to engage with how exactly on a fantasy battlefield you pass a message or order somebody to have a cavalry charge or even sort of the broader battlefield of the world of tactics or strategy. But I want to engage with all those things. And I learned about how those things worked in revolutionary war reenacting. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go on to say, I, I also got into authenticity of material culture through revolutionary war reenacting. And at some point, uh, I, I do not wish to offend any of my friends, but at some point I was, I had done 35 years of revolutionary war reenacting and I'd run the whole thing for a bit and I didn't find it that exciting anymore. Whereas the European middle ages, which, you know, I have a degree in, um, was sort of just sitting there like nobody was playing with it. And I thought, okay, for my retirement job in reenacting, I'll start a small medieval group that will do some of the same things that my 18th century group did, like wilderness camping with only medieval equipment so that we can all learn what it's really like to move and live with medieval equipment, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, now we have 190 members and somebody else is in charge because I've retired and it's pretty good. Wow. That's, uh, that's intense. <laughs> I, I guess I might as well add on to that, that next year in Greece, 
my group and I, me in particular, will be spearheading uh, the probably kind of worldwide effort to recreate the uh, aspects, let's say, of the Battle of Plataea, which was one of the largest battles in the ancient world. And next year is the 2500th anniversary. That'll be in Greece. We are working with the Greek government and the Greek efforts to put on what should be a pretty good, a, a pretty good, not just a battle, but a sort of cultural display about ancient Greece. Because yes, I also reenact ancient Greece. That sounds amazing. It's pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> and the fact that you, you, you know, your group grew to over 190 people—that's that's impressive. Uh, it, it it is a lot larger than I had originally thought. It might be eight of us. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> not much of a battle. <laughs> Uh, um, and I'll just add one more thing and then, yeah. and then let this go. Uh, actually wearing the clothes, much less the armor, like wearing a sword. Forget about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Just wearing a sword, a real medieval sword, like a long sword or an arming sword, in on the belt they used the way they wore it. You learn so many things that you can then write about. And I learned this in Japanese martial arts, but I now practice it in European martial arts. How you draw that sword is actually life and death. If you're standing, I'm going to put this in like role-playing or fantasy, but you're standing on a street corner when the bad guys attack you, you have to get your sword out of your scabbard. And that right there is going to be a moment of both martial arts display and material culture. How you draw that sword is life and death. It's about speed and practice and knowledge and how you chose to wear the sword, where it's hanging. Hey, that's all good to know when you're writing. Right, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of that, just kind of like in fantasy and book circles that I'm in, anytime somebody asks for a recommendation with good sword play, sword action, fighting, etc., your name comes up every single time. Well, that's good. I, I, I deeply appreciate that. There are moments in which I want to say like, yes, but I also write good dance scenes. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I both recognize and am flattered that that is true. Um, uh, when I go to teach, because, you know, I teach some sword fighting mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, very often people are taking my class, not because I'm the greatest swordsman in the world, but because they've read my books which is weird uh, or not weird. I don't know. One of those two things. Um, But I will say that I always try and write any combat sequence uh, based on stuff, if that makes sense. And once in a while uh, with a couple of other guys and gals, I'll sort of fight them out with people, Mm -hmm. not in a stage fighting way, but to make sure that the move that's going to capitalize the fight is going to work. Sometimes I'm just using one of the medieval or Renaissance manuals that I love. But yeah, I I try and get all that right. And I also know that there's, and I I would say this to any writer or would-be writer out there, there is a growing sport of, uh, you know, sort of, let's call it medieval combat sport to just cover a whole bunch of different things. Um, And there's a growing number of readers of fantasy and science fiction, consumers of speculative fiction and of gaming that know exactly how a sword works. And they, that leaves the writer with two options. You either need to know yourself 
or you need to know what uh, a number of very good writers do, which is to sort of blur to the end of the fight. Like the the sad truth, I, I, I actually had an SAS guy write to me and say, you know, I noticed that you're a veteran, so I assume you already know this. But, you know, when you're actually in the fight, you can't remember anything about the techniques you used. And I'm like, yeah, I totally know that. However, that's not what most fans, most fans want an experiential thing where we take them blow by blow, but there's some very good writers out there. And I would include my favorite writer of all time, Alexander Dumas. Dumas doesn't really tell you how the sword fight went. He just tells you about the beginning and the end and how the character feels about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel, and I feel like that's a lot of the way, um, you know, their fights are kind of written or battles are written, you know, and, and that's just to say, because there's so many <laughs> fantasy books out there, uh, but there's not a whole lot that's very intricate and step-by-step. Step. And like you say, kind of like in the dance, it's more just like steps up here, steps up there. That guy's dead. This guy's pummeled to death, blah, blah, blah. And it, and it moves on. Um, and, and, it, and I kind of, I kind of like the, the whole step-by-step swing, you know, movement uh, of a, of a, you know, like I said, more like a dance than, than, you know, what I traditionally see. Uh, There was this guy, Aristotle, who wrote a whole piece on how, how it was really how plays should be written. Um, But uh, now I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to drop my, my Aristotle thing. I'm just going to say, you know, we're told that, it's okay to write a sex scene as long as it's characterful. And that's, I feel the same way about violence and you make it characterful by talking about why the main, why the protagonist or whatever character you're covering, why she or he does this thing, what technique they use adds veracity, but it often can also add character. I like to talk a lot about training. I characters, I have characters literally spend time on page, hopefully not boringly, but I like to mention that they're practicing because if you're fighting for a living, wow, you'd want to practice, I would think. Right. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, I think there's only one book I've read in the past couple of years that I've actually seen somebody training and that was uh, Evan Wonder's Rage of Dragons. Yes. Yeah. Fabulous book. By yeah. Way. Yes. Uh, I mean, phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we had him on the podcast a couple months ago, but yeah, that's the only book that I've seen that that's been in other than yours is like, you know, it's trained to get better and get stronger and, and be able to, you know, overcome your obstacles and opponents and so forth. Where it's not just like all of a sudden he knows how to use a sword, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. And you know, the gut wrenching fact is that, you can put 30 years into practicing with a sword and some kid can cut off one of your hands and the first pass, right? Because actually it's very complicated, but mostly training wins right? until you're on a battlefield. Right. And then that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I mean, and you can say that, you know, in any, I guess, sport as well. I mean, you, you could say you're a, you know, you're playing soccer and you're a goalie and you've, been a goalie for 20 years in the professional leagues and everything, but one kid looks to the left corner and shoots to the right and scores on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that's it. Exactly. 
And, you know, in baseball or in football, rather, American football, they have the saying any given Sunday. Yeah. You know, that that's kind of like all combat sports, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about um, some of your more recent series um, that you've written under Miles Cameron, because that's your most recent pseudonym. (laughs) Yes. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the Trader Sun cycle? So it was a five book series that finished up in 2018. Um, I think I actually started kind of doing a lot of book reviews right as the fifth book came out. Um, but tell the audience, I guess, a little bit about that series and what they can expect from it. Well, so I don't think I'm surprising or spoiling for anyone now. If I say it's really just another Arthurian fantasy, um, it's another Arthurian fantasy, except nobody is named King Arthur and almost nothing happens the way it does in King Arthur. But I won't pretend that some of the characters aren't sort of modeled on Lancelot and sort of modeled on King Arthur and Queen Guinevere and sort of. And it is set in a pretty rigorously authentic, and I mean that in terms of culture, not everything else, uh, late 14th century Middle Ages. Uh, The action centers around a company of mercenaries who initially are asked to rid a convent of nuns from their monster problem. Uh, You know, it happens to nuns all the time. Monsters move in near the convent and somebody has to kill them. Um, And as the first book progresses, you begin to realize that these nuns aren't really normal nuns and these mercenaries really aren't very nice. And the monsters aren't really so very bad. Um, There's a sort of moral neutrality to the first book. But over the course of the series, uh, you stay with that company of mercenaries as they and their leader, in effect, become the government. And, you know, that really sort of happened in the Middle Ages a number of times. I wrote Traitor's Son partially because I love the late 14th century in terms of culture and, you know, drama, poetry, clothes, armor. Yeah, armor, definitely armor. Uh, Horses, hawking, the way people talked. I'm kind of a nutter for the late 14th century. But I also had a thing. um, This was sort of my shout line when I tried to sell it. Uh, What would it really be like to fight a dragon? Like, really? In, In a suit of armor? You know, we all, everybody knows about St. George versus the dragon. What would that actually be like? And uh, so I, I happen to know for sure that the scene that sold the series, um, you know, that some executive reading it somewhere went, yes, I'll pay you for this, was a scene in which the company of mercenaries very early on in the book takes on a wyvern in the woods. And... Um, and it's really ugly, and people die, and in the end, they get the wyvern. And really, that was a lot of that. I'm going back to reenacting. Was fed by my knowledge of exactly how uh, all the weapons work, how the crossbows work, how the spears and swords work, how armor works, when armor will protect you, and when you just get your head pulped under your helmet. All those things. Uh, are you familiar with um, the the TV series and science fiction novels called The Expanse. Yes. Uh, I know nothing about the people who write The Expanse, but I sense that they know a great deal about how space flight actually works Mm -hmm. and about science. And because of that, their work has an authenticity that just leaps off the page 
And that is what I seek to do. I gotcha. Yeah, I, I completely agree about the expanse for sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I haven't really looked into the background to see like what they did prior to writing the series. But I mean, if you read the books and, and even watching the show, I mean, you can see that it's, you know, not light speed travel and all this stuff. I mean, it takes days and weeks and, and so forth to get from point A to point B. And their hard science is so good. Yeah. You know, and they're anyway. Yeah. And I, I, I really wanted to bring that out. I, re, I really wanted to sort of make people interested in how it all really worked, whether it was food or even how a nunnery worked um, while at the same time being totally fantasy with this thing called the wild. And uh, you know, I, I am also a fairly fanatic wilderness camper. And so I, I sort of put all my monsters on one side of an invisible border and also tried to let people see their point of view because mm-hmm. we live in a world where, you know, we're, we're worried about climate change. We're worried about extinctions. Uh, you know, what, what's the dragon and wyvern point of view when the humans have ever increasingly better technology, hardened steel armor, cannons, handguns, heavy crossbows, and it's just getting harder and harder to be a monster in that world. Right. Absolutely. Um, so tell me uh, I guess a little about your newest uh, trilogy that came out from Orbit and it finished up last year. It's called Master and Mages. Yeah. So Masters and Mages, uh, I think it's a total change of pace. I've read a couple of critiques that don't believe it's a total change of pace. So, you know, you, I think everyone should read it and decide for themselves. Uh, it's... Um, I'm told it's a coming of age story. I, I, I guess, I guess maybe it is, uh, a, uh, a young man is chosen mostly because he has above average grades. I guess that's a fair thing to say. And when you meet him, he's coming back from what you could call his first semester at university, although it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, and, um, the book is about how he is forced by circumstance and event events to become someone important. And I guess my little twist on coming of age is he isn't the chosen one. He's not gifted with the greatest magical powers. He doesn't have a white gold ring or the one ring or any huge trick. He's really just a pretty well-adjusted kid who knows how to be a faithful friend and a decent person and also how to kill people. There, it's a kind of synopsis. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed creating a more detailed magic system in many ways than Trader Sun. That was fun. Um, I enjoyed writing a single point of view as opposed to Trader Sun, which had like, which was sort of like a, a, th- a Tom Clancy thriller with 800 characters. And, you know, this is what the Russian spy is thinking. Well, meanwhile, the dragons are flying over. Uh, so that was a thing. Uh, single point of view is both harder to write and to me way more fun to write. Um, and I, when I sold uh, Masters and Mages, I sold it by saying, I want to write a fantasy spy novel. And I want to do, because I used to write spy novels once upon a time. Um, and I was a clandestine intelligence officer for a while. So I kind of know how spying works. And I really enjoyed getting to write th- those parts. It's not the only part. There's big battle scenes and there's, there's an opera, you know, not, uh, but I really enjoyed writing the clandestine operations parts. 
uh, especially in the last book. And finally, um, early critics of the series basically said, and I, I, I just enjoy saying this, you know, it's really good, but it's just kind of unbelievable that all this stuff happens to Arantha. And I've noticed that nobody's written after reading the last page of the last book. Oh, now I get it. None of that was by chance, but none of it is by chance. I, I almost wanted to say to one of the early critics, like, really, don't you trust me? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, and I also, in some ways, even though uh, Trader Sun was definitely epic fantasy, uh, the Masters and Mages series allowed me more scope for what I would call pure fantasy, like big big magic, big past, thousands of years of big past, uh, stuff happening that, you know, would look really good in a Hollywood movie mm. um, with with big effects. I'm trying not to have any spoilers here, which is makes it harder to talk about the series. <laughs> You're completely fine. Um, so, so obviously, your name is Christian Cameron, but you do have two pseudonyms. So where did those come from? So um, I wrote uh, eight spy novels with my dad, and he's Kenneth Cameron, and I'm Christian Gordon Cameron. So after some discussion that looked a lot like debate, we settled on Gordon Kent, Gordon Kenneth, Gordon Kent, as our pseudonym for writing together. Uh, And then I wrote a whole bunch of historical fiction, including a historical fiction book about the American revolution uh, as Christian Cameron. And then at some point I sold my first fantasy novel and the folks at Galantz in the UK wanted me to have a pseudonym, which has not been the end of the world. And of course, miles miles just means soldier in Latin or knight in medieval Latin. Um, which is, you know, kind of funny. If you see a picture of me in armor and it says Miles Cameron, it's kind of like Night Cameron. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And it, it wasn't really my choice. It hasn't worked out too badly. Um, as I was joking earlier, it, it's not always that perfect when I'm at Worldcon and a fan says, oh my God, you're Christian Cameron too? I've read some of your other books. And I think, yes, yes, I, yeah, everyone should know that. Or worse yet, when people are like, do you have any other books? And I say, well, I'm actually Christian Cameron. And they go, oh, I didn't know that. I'll go buy a couple. And I think, see, if it was one name, anybody who read Trader Sun would immediately go read William Gold. That's my chivalry series in historicals, which is... Mm, eh arguably in a not very different world. It's the actual 14th century, 100 years war, as opposed to Christian's sort of fantasy take with First Nations and North America, 100 years war. I gotcha. Yeah, see, I mean, all these people that listen in and be like, oh my gosh, mind blown. He's three people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, and I know I had to send you on an errand before we started recording, but uh, tell me about anything you've read lately or anything you'd recommend to the audience. Uh, I'm just going to start with the two I always recommend. I, anybody who has not read Kings of the Wild by Nick Eames should get that done right away. 
Um, and, uh, you know, there's nothing bad by John Gwynn. Nothing. Uh, I would unhesitatingly recommend John Gwynn to anybody who likes my books or even anyone who doesn't like my books. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, sorry, I just grabbed books randomly off my shelf. So I have a, a, a time of dread here. Uh, fantastic. Also a nice sword on the cover, like a, a really quite good sword that is proper because sometimes books have terrible swords on the cover. Um, but I'm going to go through a couple of others. Um, do you know Nicholas, the name Nicholas Kotar? Uh, doesn't ring a bell. Okay, well, he writes sort of based on Russian fairy tales, and I really enjoy his stuff. Um, when I was in London at Galansfest, I met a gentleman called Mike Shackle, mm -hmm. and I recently read his book, We Are the Dead. Um, so good. Which, which is uh, darn good, darn good, and I would recommend to anyone. And uh, finally, I'm going to recommend a historical fiction book. Um, I realize that this is mostly a fantasy speculative fiction podcast, but I'd like to just make a shout out and say, you know, a lot of historical fiction has the same kind of themes that people look for in, in fantasy and speculative fiction. Uh, so it's called Caligula. And yes, it's about that guy, Caligula. Uh, it's by uh, Simon Turney uh, in the UK. He's not just a good historian. He's a great storyteller. And it, it was really, really good. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, just about everybody you mentioned is coming up on the podcast in the next three months. <laughs> so, good. Yeah, I've actually got uh, I've got Mike Shackle and John Gwen kind of on in April. And then I think Nick, I think he's going to be on in May when he gets back from overseas. I think he's going to a con or something in May. Because right. I think I just saw him talk about the other day. But yes, I highly recommend all of those books. Yeah, We Are the Dead. Kings of the Wild, Bloody Rose, and then all of John Gwynn's books. Granted, I keep getting uh, poo-pooed on because I have not read the entire Fitful and the Fallen series and have already read the first two books in this next trilogy that the last book comes out in April called A Time of Courage. So okay, I, I would suggest you get on that. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, I recognize that you know, people tell me all the time their TBR piles are 60 feet high. Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I, I get that. Read faster. I don't know. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, see, I, I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm getting close to a book a day. Um, like Mark Lawrence right now I think is doing a review a day. I don't know if he's actually reading every one of those books every day or he, he's just read them in the past. But he's already – I guess he's on, uh, what, 56 days now, 56 reviews? Yeah. Um, but uh, I think I just – now, I'm not finishing all these, but I've at least started all these. I think I'm at 53 now through the, so far this year. So I, I'm definitely going to have Faithful and Fallen done. It might not be before April, but I'm getting it done. Well, so. good, good on you. Uh, can <laughs> I throw out one more shout out? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I sometimes like to go back in time. So uh, I'm just finishing right now on my bedside table, Ian Banks' Look to Windward. Okay. Uh, do you know Ian Banks? Uh, I know the name, and I know he's a fantastic writer, but I haven't read any of his stuff. Well, I just want to give a recommendation, especially to people who might not have known the name because he's been dead for a couple of years. And mm -hmm. uh, he's not only a fantastic writer, he's uh, uh, just his science fiction has a completely different edge. It it always makes me happy to read it. It's so well written and it's so clean and different. So. 
Uh, and Look to Windward is just a brilliant novel about how empires screw up. <laughs> I can't I can't give a better uh, a better description. Anyway, good times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've heard so much stuff about his culture series. Um, yeah, I've got I've got a buddy that uh, he actually started blogging before I did. He's just right down the road, and uh, I think he was doing a read through of it maybe a year or so ago, and was just saying that every single book, like as it went on, just got better and better. So that's that's a series I have my eyes on. So good, good, yeah. glad to hear it. Well, uh, you know, I I try and read pretty much all the time I'm not writing, but I also do a ton of research. So at the moment, because of my current project, I am deep into, wow, a whole bunch of just straight up boring research. And I do just as much research for a fantasy novel as I do for a history novel. It's not because I think they're historical fantasy. It's just because I like to know how things work, like money. How does medieval economics actually work? Right. Stuff like that. I gotcha. So can you can you shed any light on what you're working on now? Yeah, I, I will shed a little light. I okay. call it Secret Project 7. Uh, it it's um, I guess I'll just say this out loud. Here, this is your this is your scoop where you're gonna say something that no one knows if anyone cares. I'm writing a science fiction novel. Ooh. Uh, and I won't pretend that it isn't at least in part based on US Navy carrier aviation. But it isn't actually military, and that would mislead you into thinking that I was writing, rewriting Honor Harrington, which I'm not. Uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty complicated and pretty fun. Got a big plot. Got some aliens that I think will really be fun for people because I think people will go like, oh, had never thought of that. Uh, I, this is the idea that all came together to me while I was watching Little Women. And I won't pretend that it has anything to do with Little Women, which I thought was a fabulous movie. It's just that it somehow the last the last piece fell into place and it all went ding, 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 all the way down the line. That's what I'm working on right now. Uh, immediately afterwards, I will be writing a fantasy, first book in a fantasy series. I, I've already said this a couple of times, uh, set in what we'll just call a bronze age, although that we'll just roll with that sort of a bronze age, not as historical as some of my other stuff. And, um, pretty, pretty damn interesting about a group group of people who decide to take down the gods. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> I, I, I think it'll be good. Absolutely. Uh, I guarantee the fight scenes will be good. Cause I've written the first one and it's really good. Awesome. I, whoa, am I allowed to say that? Maybe I should not say that. I've written the first one. You be the judge. Does that sound better? <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> well, Christian, uh, this has been just an absolutely fantastic chat. I have loved getting to know about your entire life, about all of your reenactment uh, stuff that you've got going on, because that just, especially the stuff in Greece, that sounds amazing. Uh, and I definitely know that we've got a ton of, ton of listeners that maybe not, have not tried out your writing yet and definitely need to. Uh, and you've given us some recommendations that I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, but guys that are listening, uh, you can find Christian on Twitter at, okay. Can you actually pronounce how to say it? Cause I don't want to mess it up. Fokion. Fokion. Okay. Fokion one. So it's P H O K I O N. And the number one, you can also find him on Instagram at Christian underscore Cameron underscore Arthur. You can find him on Facebook at Christian G Cameron, and you can find his website at ChristianCameronAuthor.com. 
and then all of the books that we've talked about today are all available for purchase on any major retailer. And we'll be looking forward to his upcoming sci-fi novel and his upcoming fantasy series that he's already started on. So, but Christian, thank you again for coming on, setting aside this time to come chat with me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, Dave, it's been a great pleasure for me too. You're a damn good interviewer. Oh, appreciate Let's do it. this again sometime. Absolutely. Let's do this, uh, you know, maybe run your next release, maybe a little bit after. Absolutely. Awesome. You're on. Well, have, enjoy, go enjoy your pancakes. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. Good Thank night. You. Night. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read Cold Iron, stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by Hashet Audio and read for you by Mark Meadows. I hope you enjoy it. It was late in the day when Sir Shenius de Brucius was ready to leave Volta. Almost everything that could go wrong had done so, and he was rushed and was prone, even after the life he'd led, to forget things. So he made himself stand by his fine riding horse in his two-stall city stable and review everything. He still had not decided what to do by the time he mounted. He set himself in motion, mostly to avoid thinking too much. His mare was delighted to be ridden. She'd been cooped up for as long as he had himself, and as soon as she was out in the street behind his house, she was ready to trot or more. He kept her gait down, because it was very important that he not be stopped. He was a little overdressed for a common wayfarer, in tall black boots all the way to his thighs, and a black half-cloak and matching black hat full of black plumes. But he liked fine things, and he lacked the time to change. He was riding out of a maelstrom, and he needed to stay on the leading edge. He could hear screams from the north where the ducal palace was. He patted the sword at his hip with his bridle hand, then he turned his horse at the first cross street, away from the palace of towering brick on the hillside, and down towards the river, the bridges, and the street of steelworkers, where he had a commission to collect. It struck him that if he collected the commission, then he had made his choice. He would never be able to come back to Volta. It also struck him that a violent political revolution could cover a great many dark deeds. There were already looters on the streets. Two men passed him carrying a coffer, and neither looked up or caught his eye. The sound of breaking glass was almost as prevalent as the sound of screaming from the north. He heard guns firing, and the snap of crossbows, and a sulphur reek floated past him and made his mare shy. There was the acrid reek of magic, too. He let the mare trot, and her hooves struck sparks from the paving stones. Volta was one of the richest cities in the west, and it had fully paved streets and running water from the two great aqueducts, which were still nothing compared to the wonders of his home, the city. Megara, which he was about to help destroy. Or not, he still couldn't decide. The mare stopped abruptly. There was a corpse in the street and the sound of steel crossing steel. He tugged at her reins, turned along an alley that ran across the back of the shops and emerged on the next broad, empty street, with tall houses tiled in red rising high enough to block the sun. 
He looked right and left, but the street was empty. From long practice, his eyes rose, looking at roof lines and balconies above him, but nothing moved, and he gave the horse her head. They flew along the street, past the corner of violence, and down to the riverside, where he reined in and turned the mare into Steel Street, where the armourers were. He knew the shop well. Anson and Egg, the two families on the gold-lettered sign, had made fine guns since the principal had first been developed far to the east. He had a moment of doubt. The street seemed deserted. But he saw a light burning and smoke from the chimney, so he dismounted, tethered his horse to a hitching post and moved his dagger back along his belt from habit. Then he pounded at the door, despite the darkening eve and the sounds of violence in the high town. He heard footsteps. You came, said young Anson. He pushed in beside the young man. I came for my fusil. The lad smiled. It is done. He pointed at a leather case on the front bar. Pater is gone. He says it will be bad here. I'm to keep the doors locked and only eat food in the house. Very wise. The man paused to admire the case. The fine steel buckles made by hand and blued and expert leatherwork. Then he took out the weapon. You made this? he asked. The young man grinned. I did too. Pater helped with the lock. I'm not that dab with springs yet. And I hired the leatherwork. The boy was so pleased with himself that the man almost laughed. He permitted himself a smile instead. And the compartment? Just as you asked, the young man said. Not in the weapon, neither. He showed his visitor the cunning compartment built for keeping a secret. Superb, the man in the black cloak said, and slammed his dagger into the young man's temple, killing him instantly. The blade emerged from the other temple with admirable precision, and the man in the black cloak supported the corpse all the way to the floor, stepping away from the flow of blood. Then he filled the secret compartment with his deadly secret, wearing gloves. One tiny jewel skittered away across the table, and he tracked it down, picked it up with coal tongs from the fireplace, and put it in his belt purse. Then he threw his gloves, fine black gloves, in the fire, where they sparkled as if impregnated with gunpowder. He left, satisfied, leaving the shop door wide open to the looters already moving along the street like roaches. I hope you guys enjoyed my chat with Christian Cameron. Uh, I know I was having a really difficult time not laughing out loud on my side of the microphone. Uh, he is a lot, a lot more funny than I was expecting him to be, and it was absolutely phenomenal. But stay tuned. At the end of this week, I'm actually going to be talking to Teresa Frohawk on Thursday, and I'll be dropping the podcast episode on Friday. But we're going to talk about her Los Nephilim series, uh, Where Oblivion Lives, came out last year and carved from stone and dream came out today. That's the 25th, the day I actually recorded this podcast and it's absolutely phenomenal. Definitely check out uh, the blog fanfyaddict.com. You can check out my reviews there uh, on March the 3rd. I'll be chatting with fantasy author, Brian Naslin. Uh, he's the author of blood of an exile from tour. Uh, that is the, that is book one of the dragons of Terra. 
Book two will be coming out shortly in the next couple of months. Not exactly sure the date of it, but we're definitely looking forward to book two. And uh, but that's going to be an awesome chat. I'm really, really looking forward to it. But uh, guys, March is going to be stacked. Uh, I've already got chats scheduled with Luke Arnold, author of The Last Smile in Center City. Uh, John Mars I actually just finished his novel What Lies Between Us. He actually has a book going to Netflix. It's actually currently in production called The One. I've also got James Rollins, who does the Sigma Force series. Uh, his new book, The Last Odyssey, drops in March. I've also got Dan Stout, who wrote Titan Shade. The sequel to that, Titan's Day, is also coming out in April. And then the writer of one of my favorite trilogies of all time, Anna Smith-Spark, with her Empires of Dust trilogy, is going to be at the end of March. So guys, I really hope you... Tune into these because I'm super excited and I hope you guys are as well. Uh, and definitely feel free to drop me a line on my Twitter at DWalters29 or on the blog, again, fanfightaddict.com. Appreciate it.